If you're visiting with us, we, uh, the way I preach is we start in a book. We start in the first chapter and we go all the way to the last chapter. So we're in 2 Corinthians. We've come to chapter 8. We're walking through it and we have come to a lengthy section in 2 Corinthians on money. It's interesting, though, that when he talks about money in the particular way that he does, he hits the heart and really addresses your heart, not your checkbook. Now, uh, I don't ever deal with money. I hate preaching on money. <coughs> matter of fact, I alluded to the fact that I've only preached about 10 times in 30 years. And I was talking to someone outside after the service last Sunday, and they said, we've been here 18 years, you haven't even come close to 10. So I felt good, but obviously walking through this passage, and we looked at one aspect last week on money, the first part of this lengthy two-chapter section, it obviously didn't have a great impact. Uh, my chairman of deacons, who's really, if you're the chairman of the deacons in a church, should be like, you know, the most, one of the most spiritual guys in the church, responsive to the message. He came up to me after the service, Randall Pitcock came up to me after the service and said, man, I was moved by your sermon. He gave me a dollar bill. So, <laughs> apparently the impact's been not good. So because of Randall, we're going to go much slower <laughs> through the passage. We may do nine or ten sermons on money. Randall Pitcock, 777-1425. <laughs> so we come into the... I told him I'd get him, and I feel so good about it. Now, we looked last week at chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Now, in those verses, and you have to understand the context again, there are two types of giving. One in the Bible is a mandate that Jesus doesn't remove from us, and that is a tithe. It's commanded. You don't have an option on that. But offerings are an option. Now, what he's referencing here isn't the tithe. He's referencing a particular offering. He has been worried about the church in Jerusalem when they came to Christ. And you've got to remember, you've got to put yourself in their day, okay? There is no safety net from the government in their day. And particularly from the only two governments that the Christians in Jerusalem are under. One is the Roman government. They hate Jews. And number two is the Jewish government, they hate Christians. When you read the book of Acts and you see the number of persecution in the book of Acts, there are only two that aren't Jewish persecutions against Christians. So they absolutely despise the Christians. So the Christians have these shops, but nobody's buying from them except other Christians, and the church is pretty minimal. So they don't have any money, and they have no safety net. The situation is dire. So Paul has sent Titus around to try to raise money for these believers in Jerusalem. He didn't go to, now Corinth is in a province of Rome called Achaia. There are three basic churches we know of in the New Testament that are in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. There are three sections in Macedonia. They have no money. Matter of fact, Paul doesn't even send Titus to those churches because they don't have any money. They call Paul up and said, hey, we want to give. And so Paul alludes to this and he says, look, they don't have any money and God moved them to give. They even begged us to give, so 
I want you to remember that. And then he makes this statement to these Corinthian Christians. He basically says at the last of last week's section that they don't give because their lifestyle is more important to them than their Savior. Now, he doesn't say that that means they're horrible because he even says the next verse talks about all the good things they have, what they abound in. But he simply makes a statement when it comes to money, the Macedonians don't have any and they're giving. You and Achaia have it and you're not. And the reason is because in your case, not in all the cases in your life, but in this particular case, your lifestyle and its value is richer you than your Savior. Now, that is a stinging statement, but that is what he says. Now, he moves on into the second section where he addresses their money. Now, listen, beginning in verse 8. He seems a little contradictory, a little tacky, but here's what he says. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, here's what he says, two things. Now, it's, it's going to sound tacky, but here's what he basically says. He says, I can't command you to give an offering. I can't because that's not under my right and my privilege. I can't do that. But. If you love other people and you love Jesus, you'll give to this offering. Now, a little tacky. You say, well, it's kind of unfair for him to compare this church to that church. Well, his position is they have money, the other church doesn't. If they have money, they ought to be giving. And so he stings them. He says, I can't command you to give, but here's basically what he's saying. And I want you to understand this principle in your life. Because he's going to lay out a bunch of principles in regard to your money in these next few verses. Here's the first one. No man can tell you what to give to any offering that comes into your life. The need of the offering. But there are certain offerings that no one else is going to meet and that are dire and that have been placed in your life for your money. We tend to, let's just get honest here. We're going to lock the doors. We tend to, let me back up. There was a day in America when the church was the charity, not the government. We've come to a place where we really don't think much about the dire needs of others because we just assume there's some government program that will benefit them, and that's simply not true. And God may place in your life certain circumstances where the need is dire, the offering is needed, you have the money, and even though I can't come up to you and command you to give, the need and the dire aspect of the offering demands you give. For example, when we uh, fought in Vietnam, you went one tour. That's all you were required. Now, some guys went extra tours, but because they volunteered. Today, guys are serving two and three tours that are mandated. And some of these, and it's mainly men, because not a lot of women are seeing the combat the men are, but a lot of these men are coming home I talked to a guy once who had uh, 
he's not in this church who had uh, faced a choice one day that he had to engage in. A young kid was carrying a weapon and was heading towards some soldiers and they didn't know he was approaching and he didn't have any choice. And when you live that out and you do that two or three tours and you come home, our guys are struggling. And a lot of them are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. They're struggling with PTSD. They're angry. They have nightmares. They can't sleep. They don't know what to do. And when they go to our VA and sit down with them and say, hey, listen, man, I'm really struggling. I'm dying here. I need uh, some benefit. VA, unfortunately, and this is a common occurrence, will look at them and say, yeah, you really do. Listen, it's... uh, it's uh, December. Let me check the counter. We can get you in in July. This guy needs in next week. Now, if this situation comes into your life, and oddly enough, for this month, you have the money and you know the counselor that handles PTSD in the town and this guy steps into your life and you have the ability to look at this guy and say you know what Bob I've got a counselor here he'll take you you don't have to tell him you're paying for it just say he's going to take care of it and you can send him there and you can provide for him a need that our government isn't going to provide let me tell you something when God puts you in those situations and you have the money and you have the opportunity and the circumstance avails itself you don't get to say no we have a responsibility to aid our brothers and I'm afraid a lot of our guys that fought so we can sit in here and enjoy worship service are coming home and the people that are allowed to worship because of their sacrifice are not doing anything to aid them in their disabilities we think the government ought to handle it and maybe they should but they're not so maybe it's time we look And when those opportunities show up in our life and we think, well, the government handled it, no, sir. If God puts that opportunity in your life, it's because the demand of the occasion means you cannot say no to taking care of that individual if you have the ability. You say, well, why should I do that? Look at what he says. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. You don't give based on the need. You give based on your Savior's sacrifice. If there's any time of year when we ought to get this, it's now. Choir's gonna, tonight, isn't that right? Choir's going to perform night singing a Christmas concert. We're going to come and enjoy it. But the essence of every Christian song at Christmas is exactly that statement. We have a God who condescended to come down here, take on flesh, so that he can be tired, he can be hungry, he can be fatigued, can be exhausted, no sleep, tempted. And the worst thing to me, Even beyond all that, 
is mocked. I mean, the Jewish leaders abused him for years. When he's home, he's adored. What a tremendous change. Let me tell you something. Do you know why? This is my own belief system. You know why the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth on the cross was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because if he had uttered anything else, this planet wouldn't be here. Bible says one angel in one day killed 186,000 men. They don't have any idea what's going on with Jesus on that cross. They don't have any idea. All they know is the one they adore, we're spitting on. And if God had given any indication that he'd been here in the blink of the eye and this planet would have been destroyed, but it was the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that put him on that cross. And that is the motivation behind your giving. Your giving isn't based on your checkbook. It's based on your Savior. He gave, so you give. You say, well, I guess that means that I don't ever give. He gave up everything. I give up everything. I give up all my money. I wind up with nothing. My family starves. Baptist response, listen to what he says. Verse 10, in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, which we will look at in another week. Who a year ago started not only to do this, but to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Now there's what he says. Absolutely. You look at the sacrifice of Jesus, you give everything up. But he stops right there and he comes back and says, look, I just want you to know. The motivation behind your giving is the sacrifice of Jesus, but you don't give up everything. I want you to give out of what you have. If you don't have it, don't give it. And there are going to be months, let's be honest, we don't have it. You're going to have some month where you go and they tell you you need breaks. They're going to look at you and say to your kid, hey, he needs some braces. Wife's been in the hospital. You're going to find out you have a 30% deductible. And there are going to be some months literally where you don't have the wherewithal to give an offering. That's legit. And so what he says is we give out of what we have. Matter of fact, If some month you all of a sudden come into extra money the first thought that you ought to have isn't well I wonder if I could buy this now that we have this there's nothing wrong with that at some point but the first thought ought to be God you've placed this money in my hand is there somewhere I'm to give it before I spend it I think that's the direction and he says you do this Achaia you send some money over here to Jerusalem you've got it you started a year ago you quit pick it back up send the money to them because who knows you may one day need their money if there's any state that understands that it's Texas 
There are only two states in America that want oil prices to be high. Texas and Louisiana. It's hard to do anything that would bless Louisiana, but we'll just move on from that subject. We understand that. There may be times when you have an extraordinary amount of money, and because of certain things, you may find that money gone, and instead of having money, you now need money. I wouldn't have believed that statement, actually, because I grew up thinking... Well, I grew up when we were taught the American dream. That uh, you go to college, you work hard, get a good job, you do what you're supposed to do, and you tithe, and you're always going to have money, and you're going to have this nice house, you're going to have a brick home, a couple cars, and you're going to end well in retirement. And then I went to Midland. 1981, I go into Midland. It is crazy the pulpit committee says to me my wife is nine months pregnant and they look at us when they're meeting with us and said my wife's sitting there nine months pregnant listen we may not be able to get a home for you if you come people are living in storage bins and we'll see what we can do I'm looking at my wife thinking she ain't called it says not gonna go well we go to Midland, sure enough, they get us a home, but I mean, this place is going crazy. I got a guy in my church that is just making money hand over fist. He had several employees one year. Every employee, the bonus, not the salary, the Christmas bonus was $60,000. I mean, this guy's making some money, and he's giving to people. He's not hoarding it. By 85 He's broke because, if you know anything about the oil at that point, it, one thing about the oil industry, it cycles quickly. And it began to go down, and his business, which is kind of one of these fringe edge businesses, was one of the first cut off. He wound up with a house and a car and his family. No longer was he giving money, he was needing money. Sometimes it happens because of circumstances. Sometimes it happens because of choice. I had a young man in my church, also in Midland, making a lot of money in his 20s, married, no children. Uh, and man, he's making tons of money in the oil field, selling chemicals. Comes in to me one day and he says, I got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, my company is demanding of me that I bribe the people I sell to. They've given me the wherewithal and the money, and, but they want me to bribe. And I said, he said, I, I, I don't think that's right as a Christian man. So we went back to his company, told him he was a Christian, loved Jesus Christ, couldn't do that. And their response was, have a nice day. Fired him became a public school teacher. They went from a really nice home into basically an RV. And if you know anything about the salary in the oil field versus, unfortunately, our teachers, he lost virtually everything because of a choice of morality. Look, I, I, 
I don't know how God's going to work in your life. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, right now in a cave, you guys are flush. These people are not. The people above you don't have any money in their giving. You started this. Finish it. And there'll be times when we're flush with money when we need to give. You say, well, no, wait a minute. Shouldn't I save? Shouldn't I save for retirement? Shouldn't I save for down the road? Shouldn't I make all these savings? Look at the last verse in this section. Verse 15. As it is written. What does that mean, that phrase? What does that mean about the next statement? It's in Scripture. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Anybody have any idea where that's from? Anybody? It's from the Exodus when God gave them manna. Now, listen to the passage. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, listen to this, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And the Lord said, don't save it. Don't hold it back. Don't hoard it. God's going to give you something tomorrow. They didn't trust God. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them morning by morning as they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. (coughs) There are times you got to save. No question about it. And they don't have to live that way their entire life as Jewish people. But there are moments in your life, and I think this is exactly why the Holy Spirit had Paul put that in this passage. There are going to be moments in your life where you are flush, you have some extra money, and there may be a situation that arises where God says to you, I'm not interested in you saving this for your kid's college education. I'm not interested in you saving this to pay off your house. There's a man or a woman in your life, they are in dire need, and I gave you this money today to take care of them do it. And those moments may come. And we have to be ready. It's interesting to me that in all this passage on money, he never really talks about money. He talks about our heart. You know, I've learned one thing through my marriage and through counseling. There are really only two ways to live. Really. I think life's really pretty simple. In every relationship, whether it's my home, parenting, friendships, church life, my money, my time, either I give it away or I take it from other people. I'm either in my marriage giving or taking. I'm either with my money giving or taking. I'm either with friendships giving or taking. And at the end of the day, that's what we boil down to. And I'm telling you, you have 
got to, those of you that are parents in this room, you have got to drill this into the lives of your children because they are struggling with this. We've got a new generation that's a consumer mentality that's coming into our church and saying, what are you doing for me? And if you're not doing anything for me, then I'm going down the street. And the other problem is your kids are marrying and going into their marriages in a consumer mentality, which is why they're divorcing right and left. They're going into the marriage saying, what are you going to do for me as a husband? What are you going to do for me as a wife? And when that doesn't work, they pack out because they're going in to get instead of give, and it's the opposite of exactly what he's discussing here. When you put all these verses together, it boils down to this. Because I understand who I am in Jesus Christ, he gave, I give. There may be a limit on my giving, but I give. I don't live to take. And that's pivotal. I buried a lady yesterday who's been gone from our church for probably a year or so. Don and Carolyn Browning, her husband's still alive. Carolyn was, uh, they had a tremendous relationship. The daughter, <laughs> Carolyn was not a weak person. The daughter had me read, uh, Don had written her love letters before they married, one a day. And so she pulled out some and said, I want you to read a little bit of this at the funeral. And one of them in particular, Don wrote her, and he basically said, now, when we get married, I'm not going to be a henpecked man. I'll have the final say in the home. You're an equal, you'll have a say, but I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> and uh, if you don't like that, you better get used to it, because that's the way it's going to be. Now, for those of the new Carolyn, I would have loved to have seen that face when she read those words. <laughs> Carolyn was strong, not weak. I told this story at the funeral, but I never look at a poinsettia without thinking about Carolyn. I'd been here I, maybe six months. I can't remember. We came in August. It was in December. And Carolyn did the flowers in the church. And so she'd put these poinsettias over the baptistry. Well, we were baptizing this kid one Sunday night. So I moved the poinsettias out of the way so people could see the kid. Oh. <laughs> Next morning, Monday morning, 10 o'clock, Carolyn's in my office. She sat down very kindly, very sweetly. But she looked at me and she said, I want you to know. My husband's a deacon, and we're going to have a motion next deacon's meeting that we do not do any more baptisms in December. <laughs> well, okay then. <laughs> so Carolyn was not some weak, namby-pamby little person. <sighs> but she lived her life. Even with that kind of inner strength, she lived her life giving, not taking. She did the weddings here. She did the prayer room when Mary Strickland left. She managed that for 25 years. She did the flowers in the church. She gave her time and her ability and her money in every possible way. But there was one other unique thing she did. She taught a particular age class, a nine-year-old class, for 49 years. Nine years old. She wouldn't teach the eight-year-olds. She wouldn't teach the 10-year-olds. She only taught the nine-year-olds. 
You know why? Because at age nine, she went through the most difficult thing she may have gone through in her entire life. Her parents divorced and basically left her and she wound up being raised by family members, by an aunt. You've got to understand something. She was 79. So 1937, right? That didn't mean much to you, but you've got to understand something. We're in our day where divorce is no big deal. But in her day, at age nine, as she told me more than once, she was the only little girl in her class whose parents divorced. So she lives in this humiliation and hurt, and yet, what might should have made her bitter and angry and hostile. As a matter of fact, did the opposite thing. Because of her relationship with Christ, it caused her not to take, but to give to the age for 49 years that she was when she went through the most difficult thing in her life. Giving doesn't mean you're weak. Giving doesn't mean you're not strong. Giving means you honor Jesus Christ. And this is the season to lock that down. Father, thank you. We're here today because you gave deeply. Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you for your son. Thank you for holding angels back. And I thank you for so many people in this room that have given into my life over the years in so many tangible ways. Honor who they are and let us become everything in this building outside of this room you want us to be. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you've never met Jesus Christ, boy, this is the time to do that. Make the Christmas real. God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship. Or if you just need to come down here and kneel and pray, we will be glad to pray with you. We'll be here to stand even during the song that the choir sings and the praise team sings. We will be glad to pray with you about anything you're struggling with or anything you know someone else is struggling with. So as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart this morning, you come.